All right, everyone, if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to be starting a new chapter this morning in this wonderful letter that is given to us uh, by the dictation of Paul the Apostle, by power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> I sure am thankful that our modern Bibles have a, uh, been given a framework of chapters and verses so that we can find where things are. Um, how have your... Con- you ever considered how often you use that, you know, when somebody's trying to ask you about something that you've read in the Word, and you can just tell them, yeah, it's in the, the fifth chapter of Ephesians, verse 25, you can go to it. It's a good way for us to be able to quickly reference the things that we're learning and to be able to share uh, what God has revealed to us together. Um, we don't have to say, like uh, so many of the biblical writers, even in the New Testament, you'll hear the Apostle Paul say, it is written, or you have heard it said, and then he'll just quote the verse, but he doesn't have a place to send us so that we might look it up and, and figure it out for ourselves. Now these divisions, the chapters and the verses are not in the original, and therefore they're not inspired. Uh, chapters were laid out fairly early in uh, the course of the church, usually organized to help the public reading of the word throughout the course of a year. And over the centuries they have shifted some, but our modern Bible uses a system of divisions that was popularized in the, the 1200s. Uh, The inclusion of the verses came later. They didn't really become popularized until the 1500s and the advent of the printing press. Uh, But the Geneva Bible in the 1550s, strengthened by the use of that press, was key in the standardizing of dividing our scripture into verses. Now, though they can be a big help to us as we navigate the, the vast resource of God's Word, we need to take care not to be hindered by those chapter divisions. Paul is still right in the thick of addressing a particular issue that was hurting the church in Corinth. And so we can't forget what we read in chapter 13. We have to understand this is all part of one letter. So Paul's mind is still firmly entrenched in sharing with the Corinthian church the importance of love in the way that the church functions, in the way that Christians behave around one another. So before the Apostle Paul lays out a comprehensive argument showing why the use of certain gifts was inappropriate in the congregation. He's going to establish the motives behind getting those gifts right. And the motive is that God gave us the spiritual gifts, not for our own glory or for our own notoriety, not to make much of ourselves, but for the edification of the church as a whole. The spiritual gifts are a tool for us, a tool by which we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if the Corinthians wanted to be a loving fellowship, they could not afford to be peacocking around, trying to draw attention to their own spiritual abilities and blessings. And sadly, as we have learned reading through this book, that was something that the Corinthians were indeed doing. They were showing off their spiritual gifts in such a way that drew attention from the edification that was going on in the church services. And instead, they were trying to make people pay attention to themselves and make themselves look holy. So as we begin this new chapter, chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians, we are still in this vein of figuring out how to properly use the spiritual gifts and how those spiritual gifts might be a benefit of love between brothers and sisters in Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're going to do five verses this morning. The Apostle Paul writes, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. 
The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, <clears throat> unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Let's take a time uh, of prayer and just thank the Lord God for these verses which direct the assembly of the, the saints gathered together to worship Him, and then we'll continue to look more deeply at these five particular verses that He's put before us today. Lord God, we praise You, and we admit to You right now our weakness as human beings that oftentimes it is difficult for us to grasp the lofty things of heaven, but we are so very grateful, God, that the resource of the Holy Spirit is ours to make use of. We know that Your presence is with those who believe, and so, God, I pray that You would enlighten us. And if there are those here today who have yet to believe in you, and I'm sure there are, Lord God, I pray that you would make today the day that they might turn their attention to things that formerly were disinteresting to them or were revolting to them. Help them to see the beauty of your word. Help them to know that there is a God, a God of creation who governs all things and upholds the universe by the word of his power. You are that one God, and we have come to honor you and worship you today. And so let us honor you in the ways that you have taught us to honor you, Lord God. I pray that our worship to you would be in line with the way that you have commanded us to worship. God, let us not give to you a gift that you would not want. Let us instead uh, give to you, Lord, the obedience that you deserve. Help us to treat you as Lord. And so we thank you, Lord, for governing us and for keeping us near to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first instruction that we get is the product of what was laid out for us in chapter 13. Paul tells us and tells the Corinthian church that they're to pursue love. Uh, Paul ends 13 declaring that love is not only great, but it is greater than faith. Remember, faith, hope, and love. These three remain, and the greatest of these is love. That's what we spoke about last week. And now he begins chapter 14 by talking about how there is a priority to the spiritual gifts as well. Faith, hope, and love, all important, but love being the greatest of those three. Now we're going to look at the spiritual gifts and realize that there are spiritual gifts, some which of which are more important than other spiritual gifts. Verse 1 in chapter 14 says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. But then he says, Especially that you may prophesy. So he himself, the Apostle Paul, is giving priority to prophecy here. All the gifts matter, but Paul's not bashful about telling the Corinthians that the potential fruit that can come from certain gifts is even more desirable to us, or it should be. And that should not surprise us, really, because Paul has said that much at the end of chapter 12, which we studied a few weeks back, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. The apostle Paul asks, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And of course, the answer to that is no, not everyone does those things. Those are gifts that the Spirit gives as God sees fit to give. Verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. So this is all part of a larger argument where the Apostle Paul is saying, yes, gifts don't all have the same prevalence in the church. There is something even greater than the gifts, which is the love by which we, teach one another, we treat one another with dignity and respect and kindness. But here in ver verse 1 of chapter 14, we're seeing what those higher gifts are. We're seeing that prophecy is a, is a higher gift than the gift of tongues. Tongues are not condemned as bad in this chapter. And you see that right away in these first five uh, verses. And this is not specifically where we find evidence that the miraculous sign gifts has ceased, which as we've taught in the, the weeks past, 
we believe as a church that those sign gifts were for a certain time, that they played a very important part in a pivotal section of, of time in the history of the church. Uh, but now, as we have the word in full, we don't need those sign gifts like we did before. We have a scripture that is sufficient to teach us and to edify us and to make us what we need to be in Christ. But Paul is drawing an important distinction, one that is going to help us to understand what our weekly gatherings for Sunday worship are supposed to look like. There's much to be said by the apostle here about how we're supposed to do what we're doing right now, how this type of gathering on the Lord's Day is supposed to be conducted. So let's pay close attention to that in the next few weeks as God is teaching us how to worship Him better. The argument that Paul makes to back up this claim that prophecy is more important than tongues is very straightforward. He says, The one who speaks in tongues edifies who? Themselves. But the one who speaks prophetically edifies the whole gathering of the saints. So, prophecy, let me just clarify here. Prophecy is not necessarily new revelation from the Lord. And I know we've gone over this, but just for the sake of review, a major component of prophecy is proclamation of what God has already revealed to us. That is of particular importance on the Lord's day. As the assembled church comes together to accomplish some very specific things, not the least of which is understanding the will of the Lord as He has revealed it to us in His Scripture. So preaching, what's going on right now in this very pulpit, is a primary means of prophecy for the church today. We take what God has given to us in the Word and we teach it with clarity. We teach it with conviction and with passion and zeal so that the church can see how important it is for us to follow the Word of God, to, to make it an integral direction and guide for our lives. But prophecy is not limited to preaching. It can be in face-to-face -face interaction with somebody who needs their attention drawn back to what God has said about himself and about his will. And where does he say those things? In the Word of God. So when you, as a brother or sister in Christ, go to one another and you encourage each other with a scripture, or you comfort one another with a scripture, or you correct one another with the scripture of God, you are acting in a prophetic sense towards one another. You are declaring what God has declared to all of us. And so this is not just a function that happens in a pulpit. This, this happens in the everyday life of the church. If you read through the major and the minor prophets in the Old Testament, you're going to see that the bulk of their work is not pointing to some future event. It's not looking into the, the, the distant future and seeing what's going to happen. Rather, their work was largely and foundationally pointing to the promises of the covenants that God had established with His people and helping them to understand how to accurately live according to those covenant promises. And if they weren't living to those promises, the prophet's job was to correct them in that, was to help them to understand, look, you're in danger because you're not living according to the things that you said you would live by. You're not living with God in relationship as you have agreed to live with Him through covenant. A great example of this is the book of Deuteronomy. Is Deuteronomy prophecy? Absolutely. It was written by the prophet Moses. But Deuteronomy is literally the second telling of the law. It's not a whole brand new revelation, but it is really right before the Israelites are brought into the Holy Land after wandering around in the wilderness for several generations. There's this opportunity for them to go into the, uh, the Holy Land with the law of God fresh in their minds. And so Moses gathers the people together and he gives them this Deuteronomy, this second telling of the law. And essentially what it is, is he's pointing back to what he gave to them when they first came into the wilderness. When they started to be disobedient and started to grumble, they already had been given the law in the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers. And yet God through Moses is 
telling them again what they had forgotten, what they had not been living according to, so that when they entered into this holy place, they would have that law fresh in their minds and they would be able to walk according to the things that were revealed to them. Clarification also needs to be made in regards to the gift of tongues here. So I just clarified us a little bit about what prophecy is talking about. It's not necessarily seeing the future, but it is proclaiming the true things of God. The gift of tongues, the actual gift of tongues, seems to be much different than what the Corinthians were practicing and calling the gifts of tongues in their assembly. So I want to look back at our foundational understanding of the gift of tongues now. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Acts was, of course, written by Luke, um, who wrote the book of Luke, the gospel, which tells us the story of Christ. And then the Acts uh, that follows it is a, a record of the work of the Holy Spirit among the earliest church as it was established and strengthened in the days after the ascension of Jesus Christ. So in Acts chapter 2, very pivotal, uh, pivotal moment in the church. We're going to start reading at verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, and Pentecost was one of three major holidays that the Jews celebrated. It was 50 days after the Passover. And we know that Christ ascended just after the Passover, so not long after that. They were all together in one place, meaning the, the believers. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, in other tongues rather, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Uh, I mentioned languages there because the word for tongues, it literally means languages. It refers to spoken languages, written languages, the kind of languages that, that were known in the world. So this is a miraculous event. This is not something that happens every day, is it? It's something that was so noteworthy that it sparked a, a, a great uprising in the early church and made many people pay attention to the work that God was doing. It involved an unexpected expression of speech. So let's read a little bit further and see how this plays out. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, so there's a diverse group there, especially considering that we're in the second holy festival of the year and so many people gathered to Jerusalem to celebrate with uh, other believers at that time, people from far off lands, people who were not native Greek speakers, some who didn't know uh, Hebrew. Verse 6, And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying they are filled with new wine. So this is a, a large list. You see a great diverse body of people this is, who are hearing the, the revelation of the gospel, and they're hearing it in their own tongue. 
the 12 disciples who walk with Jesus, and now we have 11 of them left here in Acts chapter 2, were not men of incredible learning. They were not men of the world. They, they were simple folks. And so for them to begin speaking in these diverse tongues was nothing short of divine intervention. It was so amazing to hear this happen and to be able to understand their prophetic word in their own tongue that some people mocked and said, no, 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 no you guys are mistaken. These men are just drunk on new wine. Because of the festival that was at hand, many people faithful to God from any number of places had come to worship, and many would have been hard-pressed to understand these apostles from Galilee if the message had been preached only in the native Greek or only in the Hebrew that was uh, well-known among these Galilean believers. So God institutes a spiritual means by which the message can be heard and then spread as those people who trust God take that message back to their native areas where they, where they usually live. So this is, without a doubt, a noteworthy supernatural event. The ability to speak, the description of tongues of fire, the description that others uh, thought the apostles were drunk, all shows that this is not something normal. This is truly a spectacle of God. God, though, clearly uses this spectacle for more than just awe factor. He uses these miraculous means to communicate truth. There's another very important element to this spirit-filled moment. And we need to take account of it when we consider the role that the spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues was ultimately meant to play in the New Covenant Church. Pentecost, this day has been known henceforth as Pentecost, uh, this day when they first spoke in tongues, was also a specific fulfillment of prophecy given in Isaiah. So please turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 28 in your Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah was dealing with the nation of Judah and a people who refused to listen to the direction of God and heed his warnings. Even though they had for generations received direction from God in a prophetic sense, since Israel would not hear the proclamations of God, they would not listen to those warnings, they would not turn from their sin, they would not trust in God alone, but instead were going after the help of the Egyptians and after other nations, God decided to warn them through the prophet Isaiah that one day these, these Jews who refused to hear the voice of God would be astonished to see the voice of God spoken not to the nation of Israel, but to the Gentile nations of the world. Let's, let's see how it plays out in Isaiah 28. The prophet says, To whom, in verse 9, To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk? Those taken from the breast? In other words, it's talking there, is God going to just continue always to preach to those who are ethnically Israelite, who are raised within the ethnic boundaries of Israel? It says, verse 10, For it is precept upon precept, Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. God had faithfully, faithfully reve revealed to them His will, the boundaries of His covenant, the, the ideal ways that His people were to interact with Him. Verse 11, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to His people, to whom He has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose yet they would not hear. So look at verse 11 there. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. What God is essentially saying there is that an aspect of the Abrahamic covenant that had yet to be fulfilled, this promise that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed, that promise was still relevant. 
And because Israel, this nation that was set apart and holy unto God, had refused to listen and obey the commands of Scripture given through the prophets, God was saying, one day, these Gentile nations who are not of the blood of Israel, these men with strange lips and foreign tongues, you will hear the Scripture, the the revelation of God, the prophecies of God. You'll hear it in those strange tongues. And so tongues were a sign gift. They accomplished a wonder that was needed to establish this transition from a nation of Israel, a, a, a genealogical group of people, to an international gospel that indeed was to take place in this new covenant church. And this is a product of God's supernatural intervention. So as we think about this, this prophecy of Isaiah being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, the Israelites who thought that they were the only keepers of the word of God are now hearing the word of God go out to all these nations, to all these people of various places in the world. That was an important sign. It was a gateway into this understanding of what the new covenant was going to be like. There is technically no longer the need to expose Jews to this revelation that the gospel would extend to all people because that's exactly what happened. As the course of the church unfolded and the different nations began to hear, the Gentiles began to repent, and the gospel began to spread throughout the whole empire and even the world. The Jewish Messiah is being preached to this day to people groups throughout the world, and we're seeing peoples from hundreds of tribes and tongues teaching teaching and preaching through God's word. So Oral Palmer Robertson, um, Presbyterian scholar, has this to say about this transitional period and how this sign became fulfilled in the day of Pentecost and a couple other brief ex, uh, ex- exhibitions of the, the tongue gifts in the book of Acts. He says, Tongues served well to show that Christianity that had begun in the cradle of Judaism was not to be distinctly Jewish. Now that the transition between old and new covenants has been made, the sign of transition has no abiding value in the life of the church. Today there's no need for a sign to show that God is moving from the single nation of Israel to all the nations. That movement has become an accomplished fact. As in the case of the founding office of the apostle, so the particularly transitional gift of tongues has fulfilled its function as a covenantal sign for the old and new covenant people of God. Once having fulfilled that role, it has no further function among the people of God. So Robertson is, is arguing for what we argued for a few weeks back, that the sign gifts such as speaking in tongues and prophesying of new scripture and, uh, and, and, and these kinds of things, these were for the time of the apostles and the early church, and now that the church is established, there is not a need for those gifts any longer. We do still have a multitude of wonderful spiritual gifts that God gives to the church and strengthens the church by, uh, but the speaking in tongues is not one of them. Acts 2 is the primary passage of Scripture that we have explicit description of how the gift of tongues plays out. There are a couple other small examples in the book of Acts where the same kind of thing happens as a sign for people that did not know about the Pentecost. But this is basically your primary text to understanding the teaching of spiritual gifts. We learn from it that, that this is a sign gift. This is a gift that shows us that something is changing, something drastic has happened, and God's new covenant is not going to be exactly the same as the old covenant. This is a sign that is given by God. It's not given at the discretion of men. The apostles weren't sitting around saying, how do we reach these people from Arabia? How do we reach these people from North Africa? How are we going to do it? Now, in Pentecost, we see that God just filled them with the Spirit. He moved them in a way they weren't expecting to be moved. We see that it was useful for the communication of the gospel. 
Let's not miss that, friends. When we see Pentecost unfolds, it's unfolding for a purpose. People are not just hearing gibberish. They are hearing the gospel in their language. So real languages are being used to transmit real communication to other people. And then let's also see in, in Acts chapter 2 that it shows us, it carries a significant indicator. The foreshadowing of Isaiah 28 had come to pass. This foreshadowing was fulfilled now. So now let's compare that to the kind of speaking in tongues that Paul's addressing in Corinth. As we study through chapter 14, <clears throat> we will see that Corinthians were standing up in the middle of the Lord's Day services. We're going to see that they were speaking out in disruptive ways. They were proclaiming in a language that not even the one speaking could understand. Uh, words that seemed like words might have been words, but nobody was interpreting these things. It was disruptive to the service. These speaking in tongues that the Corinthians were exhibiting were not with the goal of communication in mind. They resulted not in edification, but in confusion and disruption. So they were not for the building up of the saints. They were actually for the affirmation of the individual doing the spiritual speaking. After carefully examining Paul's address uh, to the, of these tongues, it would appear that the languages being spoken by those Corinthians who were standing up and disrupting the services were probably not even real languages. There is an allusion in chapter 13 to the tongues of men and angels, and some argue that perhaps they were speaking an angelic dialect, that these languages that were being blurted out in the gathering of the saints on Sundays were some kind of a spiritual language that was meant to help a person, an individual, communicate straight with God. Does Paul ever affirm that as an option? That people actually can speak in heavenly language? Some people point to Romans chapter 8, and they say, well, look, the Spirit can interpret our unintelligible sounds. In verse 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for what we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Yeah. So some people say, well, look, doesn't Paul talk about this heavenly language there where nobody else can understand it, but the Spirit understands it? <clears throat> and I would challenge that interpretation. God is omniscient. He needs no formal language to know what is on our hearts or in our minds. Granted, he does not even need communication at all. He, he already knows. So there may be a sense in which a, a believer may communicate with God by ways of groanings, perhaps, or with some other unintelligible expression. I know that I have sat at the bedside of someone whose loved one just passed away, and I have wept with them, and I've heard them calling out to the Lord God. And some of the things, the noises they were making, the groanings they were making, they expressed a true grief. I didn't know what those sounds meant, but the Lord God knows the heart so intimately that they didn't need to be intelligible words. That person's emotions, that person's experience was understood by God. They had a compassionate God in heaven who was there to care for their needs, even if no other human being could understand what was going on. Even if their pastor sitting right next to them could not understand what was going on, Christ understood their heart and their grief. But Romans 8 describes our failures to express ourselves intelligently. This gift of tongues that the Corinthians were enamored with is different. They claimed that it was God communicating important spiritual truths in completely unintelligible ways. Now, isn't that a contradiction in terms? The moaning of a person's broken heart is not the language of angels. And I can see nowhere that man is told he may be given the ability to speak some heavenly language. And that idea is certainly foreign to Acts chapter 2, the primary example we've been given to understand the gift of speaking in tongues. 
And in fact, every time you see an angel appear to man, the angel speaks the language of the men that he is talking to. We don't ever see an angel come and speak in a, in a heavenly tongue and the person unable to understand what they're saying. So if private prayer language were a thing, it would not properly be a spiritual gift. Because spiritual gifts, by definition, are for the edification of others. Do you remember when we went through this in chapter 12? In verse 2, it says, You know that when you, are, you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. In other words, Paul warns them, you come from a bunch of different backgrounds, friends. You're believing in Christ now, but the lives that you used to live, you lived in foreign temples where they had these ecstatic expressions of fake spirituality, some places which they were probably filled with demons and they were spouting out things that sounded spiritual but were, were dark and were dangerous. He says, I know where you came from. Don't forget where you came from, Corinthians. Then he goes on to say in verse 7, when he's describing the usefulness of these gifts, he says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That is the express intent of spiritual gifts. The manifestation of the Spirit, not for the personal good, but for the common good. Chapter 12, verse 7. And then in chapter 12, verse 11, he says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each individually as He wills. So this speaking in tongues that was used in Pentecost was God using his servants, these apostles who were submitted to his direction and guidance, using them in a way to accomplish his own will. It was not these apostles expressing their spiritual gift as they felt led to do so or as they wanted to do so. It was at the, uh, the uh, behest of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11 confirms this concept. It says, as each has received a gift, meaning a spiritual gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So these spiritual gifts help the body, and they give glory to who? To Christ. And yet in Corinth, these so-called spiritual gifts were not glorifying Christ. In fact, they were interrupting the glorification of Christ in the services on Sunday mornings. Instead, they were bringing attention and in, in being used to try to impress other believers into thinking that these particular Christians were super spiritual and had some sort of a beeline to the Lord that nobody else had. They, they were accomplishing the exact opposite of what the spiritual gifts were supposed to be. So if there is a prayer language that people can privately pray in, which I don't think the scripture supports, then it is not particularly a spiritual gift. And it doesn't apply to Paul's discussion here as he instructs these Corinthians on how to use spiritual gifts because spiritual gifts are not for private benefit. They are for the benefit of the body of Christ. So Paul gives a subtle warning later in verses 14 through 15 that indicate that this kind of communicating with God through our uh, though our minds are unengaged, though we can't understand what is being said, that it shouldn't be satisfying to us. For these Corinthians who are doing this, who are babbling on and on and couldn't even tell you what they were being told or being uh, used to, to express in these services, he's saying that that shouldn't be uh, satisfying to you as a Christian. It says in verse 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. In other words, he says, if I was to do what you're doing, I would be praying in such a way that I'm doing something spiritual, but my mind has nothing to do with it. It's like I'm disconnected from the whole process. It says, what am I to do? Verse 15, he says, I will pray with my spirit. In other words, I'm not trying to tell you not to be spiritual. Be spiritual. Pray with your spirit, but pray also with your mind. 
be engaged with what God is doing because he doesn't intend to just sweep you along with these mysteries that aren't understood. He reveals himself to you. Pray also with your mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I also sing with my mind also, right? That's part of the reason why when we sing praises to the Lord, we don't just pick whatever song is on the top 40 of the Christian music charts. We want songs that express to you the things that the Word has revealed to you so that we can sing those things back to God and tell Him that, yes, we believe you are who you say you are. We want, us, we want to worship you in spirit. We also want to worship you in truth. We want to make sure that things that we say about you, God, are accurate and are edifying and come from your Word. So Paul's determined here to do nothing apart from his mind. He's going to pray in his spirit. He's also going to pray with his mind. He's going to think these things through. He's going to be engaged and thoughtful. He's going to sing. He's going to praise with his spirit. But he's also going to sing with a thoughtful mind that is thinking carefully about things that are describing God in those songs. This is not just Paul describing his own personal approach here. He's helping the Corinthians to see what is normative to the body of Christ. They too should not be giving worship to God that is absent-minded, that is thoughtless, that is disruptive, and that actually prevents people from being edified by the true prophecy that can go on in a worship service. From the scriptural evidence that we draw, uh, that we've just read, we can draw the following conclusions. The Corinthians were claiming to speak extemporaneously by the way of the spiritual gift of tongues, but there is no compelling evidence that that is what they were actually doing. The evidence suggests they were manufacturing the experience perhaps allowing their pagan past to influence their redeemed present. Paul doesn't bother to try to figure out what they were saying in those times. Rather than doing that, he sets his sights on protecting and securing the specific arena of worship that happens when the saints gather together. So we're going to continue to go into that in greater detail in the weeks to come. But for this morning's passage, what we need to really focus on is the fact that prophecy takes priority over tongues. And that's a big claim, so let's see why it is the greater of the gifts. The Apostle Paul offers three characteristics that cause the prophetic gifting to stand out as superior to the gift of tongues that the Corinthians were so crazy about. And again, this is not to make somebody who has the gift of service feel like their gift is small, or their gift of hospitality is insignificant, or their gift of faith is somehow not important to the body of Christ. Everybody's gift is important. But here, this is a gift that we should particularly desire for God to use in our lives. And so let's look at prophecy, what it actually communicates. And I see here in in, in verse 3 that there are three things that it, it points out to us that are particularly important to the body of Christ. Prophecy builds up the listener. It builds up the listener. And the word for builds up here is oikodemos. And this Greek word is a combination. It's a conjugation of two Greek words. Demos, which is to build. And oikos, which means a home or a dwelling place. And the idea is is here that the prophetic instruction, as we learn from the oracles of God, as we look at his scripture and we consider it and we try to apply it to our lives, it's going to help us to build our lives into a fitting home where the Holy Spirit is to dwell. We we know that that's what Paul is thinking about because in chapter 7, The apostle preached that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is the home where the Spirit of God dwells if you are a believer. And we need to be diligent to use the body to live in holy ways so as not to defile it or to make it unholy. And and you remember that in chapter 7 when we went back and we studied that. So in chapter 7, that specifically and practically meant that the Corinthians had no business acting in sexually immoral ways. 
even though that was the normal behavior in the non-believing population of Corinth. It was common there. It was legal, but the Apostle Paul says, yeah, it might be lawful for you to do that, but it is not appropriate for you to do it. It's not beneficial to you. It's not acceptable for Christians to participate in that kind of behavior because your body is holy unto the Lord. So they didn't have the right to defile it. It didn't technically belong to them anymore. It was the Lord's body. They were going to be used by God for the edification and the glorification of, by the, for the glorification of God and the edification of the church. So by hearing the oracles of God and responding to them in faith and obedience, the Christian is better able to pursue the holiness of the Lord and live in such a way that the light of Christ might be evident in their conduct and in their words and the ways that they live. A couple of weeks back, on November 14th, um, our own Paul, not the Apostle Paul, but Pastor Paul, uh, was preaching on Sunday evening, and he was communicating to those who had gathered that evening about the blessings of sanctification, and as it was addressed in the Baptist Catechism that we've been going through. So what is sanctification? It's the process whereby God continually refines the thoughts and actions of Christians so that become increasingly more Christ-like. So they might live lives where you might see the evidence of Christ's work in them and through them. We are justified when we are saved. So when we surrender our lives to Christ and He comes in and wakes us up and gives us a new heart, we become saved and justified. And that means that we are declared righteous before the Lord God. Our sins are forgiven and we're no longer seen as a rebel to the kingdom at that point. But we do not have a complete maturity when we're saved, do we? That takes time. There is much to learn and to do as a result of this salvation that has transformed us. Now, most of us know that. But by preaching from passages like 1 Corinthians 1, 29-31, and Philippians 2, 12-13, Paul, our pastor, proclaimed that what the Scriptures proclaim, that sanctification is not something that I work to do once God saves me. In fact, it is something that God continues to work in me by His own power. It is what we call a monergistic work. God alone is the one who brings about sanctification in our lives. And so we pray for that. We ask God to make us more mature. We ask Him to refine our lives and to get rid of the sin that is there. And when that happens, we can take confidence in knowing that it wasn't us manning up and being stronger and getting rid of those things that we should know are wrong. It was God working in us and overcoming that tendency that we had been clinging to. He does it himself. So sanctification is just as much a gift to us as the justification that causes us to even want to be sanctified in the first place. And that's different from thinking about, synergist, uh, thinking about sanctification in a synergistic way, which is how most people think about it, which is how I was thinking about it prior to two weeks ago on Sunday evening. I was learning in that service. I was sitting there thinking more carefully about sanctification. and It gave me a greater appreciation for the gift of sanctification. It helped me to glorify my Lord more, knowing that sanctification is not me working hand-in-hand hand with the Lord, which wouldn't really match what justification is, right? That's all the work of God. So why wouldn't sanctification also be all the work of God? So now I'm grateful for that, and I'm, I'm thankful that I grew through that sermon. I'm thankful that I was edified by it, that I was given this, this new information that helped me to appreciate my God all the more. I'm so thankful for the preaching of the Word, and I hope that you don't just get preaching from us as your pastors. I pray that you are hungry for the Word in such a way that through the, the day, as you have time, that you're putting on a podcast, and you're listening to people talk about the Word, that you're listening to other pastors 
preach the Word of God, that you're, you're interested to hear what other congregations are going through in the Scriptures and how it's growing them, because the preaching of the Word is so very important to the growth and the edification of the saints. It's how we are built up, brothers and sisters. Are you experiencing that kind of okademos in your life? Are you regularly hearing the Word of God proclaimed and preached and taught in such a way that you're growing in strength, that you are more stable in what you believe today than you were a couple of years ago? Are you pursuing friendships with people who are going to press you towards a better understanding of Christ? People who are going to keep you accountable, who are going to encourage you, people who are going to be willing to confess to you when they struggle and get off the path and who will expect you to do the same with them. This kind of prophecy, this prophetic expression of the gift of telling the truth of God's word is one of the ways that we are built up as a church and made stronger, that we might walk in grace and be more Christ-like in our everyday and, uh, actions and attitudes. You might notice that this process involves exchange. It happens from faith to faith. The one who prophesies gives something of great value to the one who hears it, even if it isn't what that person wants to hear. It's just what they need to hear. That's not the case with the spiritual gift of tongues, a.k.a. that the Corinthians were saying they were expressing in these worship services. No one was being edified by these outbursts. Only one person was being magnified as super spiritual. It wasn't really helping anybody out at all. But prophecy, on the other hand, builds up the brothers and sisters in faith. Earlier I pointed out to you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8-1, in which Paul describes an important contrast, says that false knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This is the same word that is used here to describe the strength of prophecy over tongues. When a person arrogantly acts as though they know something that those around them do not know, i.e. speaking in these strange tongues that were being expressed in Corinth, then the end result is that one who claims to have this knowledge begins to have visions of themselves that are artificially inflated, uh, that are are pompous, that are disproportionately impressed with the self. They think more of themselves than they ought to. And it is essentially a self-deception. One who hears another speaking in tongues may be mesmerized, they may be captivated, they may be impressed to some degree, but they will not be built up. The content of what the speaker is being said is not sharing any kind of reasonable information that might be put to good use by those who hear it. And so in Corinth, where we know that people were bursting out in tongues like this, interrupting the gathering of the saints with these ecstatic languages that no one can understand, they were replacing the preaching and communication of God's good and useful word with the exclamation of nonsense. Not only was it worthless time spent, but it was taking up time that could have been spent in better ways pointing to Christ and showing how God is preaching His Son, Jesus, through all the Scriptures. So that's the first facet of prophecy that makes it a mighty gift of the Lord. The second is that prophecy works to encourage the one who hears it. It builds up the one who hears it, and it also encourages the one who hears it. Now, encouragement is a mightier practice than we often think it to be. Encouragement is not simply the work of the cheerleader. Go for it! You can do it! I know you have it in you. Some people think that that's what encouragement really is. But building up encouraging a believer by way of prophecy does does not mean flattering them or making them think more highly of themselves. Encouragement doesn't mean giving a person a bigger view of who they are or urging them to trust in their own heart or mind. 
If it seems as though the main goal of a preacher that you're listening to is to make you like yourself more, here's a hint. You're listening to the wrong preachers. That is not our job as preachers. Our, our job as preachers is to point all of our eyes to the superiority of Christ and the greatness of His holiness. So true prophecy does not aim to give you a higher view of yourself. It aims to give you a higher view of Christ. Encouragement isn't flattery. Encouragement does exactly what the word implies. It instills courage into believers. It makes them less afraid. It gives them surety and confidence, not in themselves, courage in Christ. Courage that will help them to love more radically as Christ loved. Courage that will give them the, the, the strength to stand in the face of opposition as Christ stood in the faith, face of opposition. The believer needs courage, doesn't he? Courage to be holy. You live in a world where it is increasingly more dangerous to be a holy Christian. Because what you are in Christ is not acceptable to the world that you live in any longer. It used to be we, we were in a time when our nation valued the moral benefits of Christianity enough that they would put up with the, regular, the other stuff. But friends, the more this nation slides away from the, the, the truth of God's word, the more people are going to become hostile to those of us who really cling to the things of truth. So we need courage, courage to be holy, courage to abandon the illusion of self-control. So much of sin is wrapped around the idea that we can control our own lives and that as long as we can just somehow convince God to be on track with what we want, then we'll be happy. But it takes courage to say, you know what? As much as I want to be in control, I will wreck my life if I'm the one at the wheel. I need the Lord Christ to be in control of my life. I need Him to dictate what I do, what I say, and where I go. And if I can learn to be happy with the will of God, then I will have joy true joy, trusting that the Lord who always works towards the good of his people is not going to lead me astray. We need courage to abandon that illusion of self-control and to give up this idea that if, if we work hard enough, we can make our life what we want it to be. Rather, let us pray, thy will be done, Lord. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Make my life what you desire it to be. It takes courage to pray that way. We need courage to confess our sin and to admit that our idols are worthless. We need courage to be honest in the face of, of the challenge of knowing that we don't do it right all the time. And when we do it wrong, we need to be honest about that with God and also with one another. We need the courage to say, yeah, I, I failed here. I, I messed up. I, I've disqualified myself, perhaps, from, from serving God in, in certain ways. I, 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 don't, I don't have the right now to, to do what I used to do. If, if we fail, if we wreck the ship, then we need to be honest about those things. If we need encouragement and accountability and prayer from others, we need to be willing to say, listen, I'm struggling with an area of my life that I could really use your help in. Keep an eye on me. Help me to become more edified. Build me up in the scripture. And, and the prophecy that God has given the church is one of the ways that that happens. So how can we have that kind of confidence and boldness if our courage is founded upon our own ability? We can't. Confidence that's founded upon the self is confidence so easily corrupted because we're regularly falling short of our own, uh, on our own. True courage is, is merited only when our hope and faith is placed on the proper object, and that is Jesus Christ. If the Son of God has come and lived the perfect life that you could not live, if He's fulfilled every bit of God's law, if the Son of God has boldly gone before false accusations and suffered death, punishment, 
abandonment, scorn, and hatred, if he suffered all of that for you, if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, rose from the grave on the third day, if death could not even hold Jesus down, then why would you want to put your confidence in yourself rather than that holy Son of God? Let your confidence be where it belongs, church. It belongs on Christ. Prophecy points us to have courage in Christ. If you look for examples of courage in the New Testament, the places that you're going to see the word most used explicitly, almost all of them have to do with a willingness to even lay down one's life if necessary for the sake of the gospel and the glory of Jesus. In Mark chapter 15, Joseph of Arimathea, seeing that Christ had just been crucified, he has believed in Jesus, but he's kept it a secret until now. And how does he make it public? He goes to Pilate's officials and he says, may I have the body of Christ that I might prepare it for an honorable burial. That took courage, church. He was a part of the council of the Sanhedrin. He probably was kicked off of that council after identifying with Christ in that way. In Acts chapter 23, the Spirit told Paul to have courage because he was about to be brought in chains before Roman officials that he might preach the gospel to them. He was going to have to become a prisoner in order to get to the person God wanted to preach the gospel to. And he says, take courage. This is part of my plan. Do not give up hope. When things look bleak, they're going exactly the way that I've ordained them to go. In 2 Corinthians 2.5, Paul encourages brothers that to be separated from our body is to be present with the Lord so we can take courage. We can take courage in the face of sickness or in the case of, of being old and just having our bodies fall apart and knowing that we're coming to the end of that journey. We can take courage when people are hostile to us. And when we live in a city where crime is rampant, we can take courage and not be in fear because death to the Christian is different than death is to the non-Christian. If someone takes our breath and our heartbeat stops, we do not cease to be. We cease to be here, and we enter in the presence of our Lord. So be courageous, Christian. Know that nothing can keep you from the love of your God. Encouragement emboldens us to have, uh, by having us think more of Christ and less of ourselves. And I hope that the preaching that you hear on Sunday mornings encourages you in that way. I hope that the things that you're reading regularly through the week encourages you not just to be happy and joyful, but to also be ready and courageous to be set on doing whatever God has called you to do, no matter how much opposition you might face. There is a third benefit as we are drawing near to the end of our time. Prophecy works to console the one who hears it. How is consolation? Well, let's put it this way. If, if encouragement is a work of addition, you are given courage that you might walk out on faith, then consolation is a work of subtraction. It is a work of subtraction because it takes away our fears and our sorrows that we may not be hindered long-term from them. Grief, doubt, terror, guilt, loneliness, these are all indicative of the human experience. They can all entangle us. They can slow us down. They can discourage us from walking in faith. Yet they can all be rendered powerless in the face of God's truth proclaimed prophetically. Psalm 94, 19 says, When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Think about that, friends. When the cares of my heart are many, and you've been there in the last couple of years, I know. Each of you has had to deal with some serious things. Each of you has had to cry out to the Lord and ask for his mercy upon your life. Each of you has wondered when it was going to end. Yet when your cares are many, your consolations, O oh Lord, they are the things that, that soothe my soul. They console me. 
They cheer me up. They make me have reason for joy. So let us constantly seek the consolations of God's prophetic truth. Let us anchor our hearts to the true things that God declares. Let us refuse to seek consolation in the perishing things of this world. For even the things that appear spiritual but are not can do more harm uh, can do more to harm our confidence in Christ than to strengthen them. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, to one who speaks in a tongue, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. We have these three benefits of prophecy, and there are many more than that. But when we prophesy in the church, we are helping everybody who is gathered to grow in the Lord. We're not just helping ourselves. Speaking in tongues is the way that the Corinthians as the Corinthians were speaking, does not result in edification of the group. It does not result in encouragement or consolation. It only builds up the self. Now, is it wrong to build up the self? It is not. We have plenty of examples of a person seeking to be built up in Christ. We are to examine our own hearts. We are to seek the Lord when no one else is looking. But our culture is such that we need zero help in finding reasons to be self-focused. We don't need that preached to us. You don't need somebody to say, be self-edified, build up yourself. Rather, what we need is instruction on how to care for the people around us, to think outside of ourselves. And, and, and honestly, there's not always someone right by your side to edify you. There's not always someone who can encourage you or console you or tell you the things of God. And so in those moments, what do you do? You preach the gospel to yourself. You prophesy to yourself. You say, what has the Lord taught me about these things? Why am I so afraid right now? The scripture has told me to be bold in this situation. The, the scripture has told me not to worry about what I'm going to say or what I'm going to eat or what I'm going to drink or how I'm going to provide for my needs. I don't need to be afraid of these things. Remember the gospel, Nick. Don't, don't let the world and its cares bog you down. Don't let it make you tired. The scripture has told you that you're alive in Christ. The scripture has told you that you have the indwelling Holy Spirit to overcome Preach the gospel to yourself and be prophetically encouraging, edifying, and consoling to yourself as you go back to the word of God. So it's not wrong to build the self up. But this place, this gathering of saints, is not for that. The gathering of the saints is for the edification of the body of Christ. And no one of us is the body of Christ. We are the body because God has joined us together underneath the headship of Jesus so why be a champion for speaking in tongues if there's another means of grace which is more powerfully effective at cultivating love among the saints? We conclude this morning by looking at the last statement that Paul makes in this paragraph. In verse 5, he says, Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. What kind of tongues is he speaking about there? Is Paul saying, I want you all to speak gibberish that you don't understand so that people will pay attention to you? No, he's talking about the tongues that we studied in Acts chapter 2, right? I think it would be great if, if the Lord would use all of you in that way. If the Lord would speak to you from a different culture and a different language, if he would share the gospel with that person in a different tongue, man, would that be encouraging to see God work in that way. But honestly, most of us need to learn to speak the gospel in our own tongue. We need to preach to the, to the person who lives right next door to us. We need to share the gospel with our own children, all right? So, so let's understand that when Paul's saying, I, I want you all to speak in tongues, he's not saying, I want you to all be ecstatic expressors that bring attention to yourselves. Rather, he's saying, look, it's not, there's nothing wrong with biblical tongue speaking. At that time, it had not passed away yet. It has now. So there's no sense in me wanting for you to speak in tongues. I want you all to prophesy. I want you all to speak the truth to one another in love. 
I want you all to, to be bringing one another to the scripture. When you see a brother or sister who's down, I want you to pull them aside, pray for them, and share a scripture with them. Something that will remind them that they have every confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and they need not be hindered by the weight of the world. Much of the de- this debate about signs boils down to this. What is your theology of the word of God? <clears throat> Do you believe that the word of God is God's means of strengthening his church? Do you believe that these are the, the words of scripture? That these are the things that edify us, that give us a standard of truth, that we're to use to help each other? Do you believe that this is not only free of error, that it is not a contradiction to itself, but do you believe that this is sufficient, that it is enough? They will, till the end of time, till when Christ returns, you will have no problem finding somebody who says, oh, that word is good, but it's not enough. They're going to try to sell you on some new scheme, some new revelation, some new prophecy, some addition, some addendum, some added bonus that regular Christians don't have. Church, you don't need it. Have the right view of Scripture. Christ has given us his word through divine means. He has spoken his truth through men appointed to record it. It has been preserved and protected over the ages for you. It is enough. It is all that you need. Let us be thankful for the Lord and what he has given to us through prophecy. Let's uh, have a word of prayer and then we're going to transition to a time of recognizing some new members. God, we thank you for your grace. We are so very happy that you are good, that you are bold enough to speak the truth to us. We thank you that Paul did not shrink away from this opposition in Corinth that thought they knew how to do things without his help, Lord, but he knew that in love that they needed direction, they needed guidance. And so as a a, a loving father to them, he, he cared for their needs and he gave them this correction. And I pray, Lord God, that we would take these things to heart as well that we would not fall into the similar patterns of wanting attention for ourselves or trying to draw the spotlight when in reality the spotlight belongs in one place. It belongs in your Son. And so we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his victory. And we pray that you would help us to live victoriously as we remember the things that have been given to us for our edification, for our encouragement, for our consolation. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.